the setting you might remember is uh, Egypt, and we've just had the ten plagues, as we tend to call them, the ten strikes, as the Bible actually calls them, the tenth of which uh, was this uh, plague where the firstborn, likely the firstborn son, uh, in each family uh, died, unless... Uh, unless a lamb was sacrificed in the household and the blood painted above the doorframe. Uh, known as the Passover, uh, when God passed over the houses that were shielded by the sacrifice of the lamb. Uh, today we're, we're, uh, we're picking up not on the event itself, uh, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago when Zach preached, but rather on the celebration that God commemorates, or, or orders the Israelites rather, uh, to hold each year to commemorate it. So let me read from Exodus 12 and verse 44, 43 even. Let's hear the words of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you've circumcised him. And no foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. And then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did, just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. But the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be a sign on you, on you, it shall be to you a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. But when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart for the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals and the males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? 
you shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeemed. It shall be as a mark on your hand, or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. I'm just going to read one second, much shorter passage from the New Testament, from 1 Corinthians 5, and verses 6 through 8. If you happen to have one of the sheets as we walked in, you'll have it. I'm afraid I only thought of putting it in too late for those of you who got it on email. So 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8. Paul writing to a church in Corinth, in Greece. Uh, Your boasting is not good. Uh, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Uh, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let me pray for us as we begin today to look at this passage. Father, we pray uh, this morning that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts, uh, will be pleasing to you, uh, our rock and our redeemer. Uh, Bless us, we pray, by the power of your spirit, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If I was to ask you, who are you? Uh, How would you answer? Who are you? How do you introduce yourselves? Identity is a huge theme, isn't it, in our society? We talk about identity politics. Uh, We we talk about creating our identity. Uh, But just very simply, who are you? Uh, Perhaps you, you go to your job. I'm an engineer, I'm a doctor, I'm a a banker, I'm an accountant. Perhaps you go to your family. I'm a mum, I'm a dad, I'm a brother, a sister, I'm a son. Perhaps you go to some geographical... I'm from Kenya, Uh, I'm from Derby, I'm from Leeds, Uh, I'm from Scotland. Uh, Perhaps you go to abilities. Oh, I'm a, I think I'm thinking of myself as a, as a clever person. I'm a scientific person. I'm a poetic person. I'm an artist. I'm a sportsman. I'm an athlete. I'm a funny person. I'm a friendly person. I'm a kind person. But what about if I tied the question up and said, who, who are you as a Christian? How would you describe yourself as a Christian? Some of you might say, well, I'm I'm not a Christian, if I'm honest. Uh, If that's you, then first of all, just thank you so much for coming. We hope you feel welcome among us this morning. Uh, And I hope what we look at in Exodus will will help you get a bit of a view of what it would mean to be be a Christian, what what it's all about. But if you're already there, if you'd already say, yeah, I follow Jesus, what sort of Christian are you? It's a strange question. Uh, Perhaps your mind goes sort of... Uh, to church traditions, I'm a, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm an Anglican. Or, or theology, I'm, I'm an evangelical Christian, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. And maybe it goes more to kind of how you think you're doing. Oh, honestly, I'm a pretty poor Christian. I'm a weak Christian. I'm a doubting Christian. 
I'm, I'm a Christian who is plagued with sin. Identities matter because our sense of who we are shapes hugely how we then live. Even if we never think about it, we may never have thought about identity politics or stop to think, who am I? But even at a subconscious level, we will be living out a sense of identity, a sense of who we are. And and what's significant, for for our time this morning at least, is that our identity is shaped significantly by by signs and by rituals. That's true for all of us, whether you call yourself a Christian or not. Uh, Yesterday I went to Roundhay Park, as I I tend to do on Saturdays, trying to get the sermon sort of clear in my head, trying to make it make some sense at least. And as I walk around the park... Uh, you, sort of, you obviously pass lots of people. Uh, so I passed a woman wearing a blue jumper. It was actually kind of a white jumper with a big blue rectangle on the front with gold stars in a circle in the European Union flag. Uh, behind her, a few yards on, was a, uh, two women actually pushing prams wearing the, the, the niqab. We sometimes call it a burqa. I think it's called a niqab. Apologies if I've got it wrong. But yeah, the, kind of the veil, the Islamic veil. Uh, behind there was a, a pretty big guy with his son climbing a tree, or son was climbing the tree, uh, and he was wearing Leeds United kit, a shirt and a, and a cap. Uh, they were all signs, symbols, that, that reflected their identity. Uh, in part, it was them expressing their identity. I am a supporter of the EU, and presumably I'm someone who is anti-Brexit, and I want you to know about it because I'm wearing it on my chest. I'm a Muslim. I'm happy to identify with the teachings of the Quran. I'm a Leeds United fan. Part of it was expressing their identity, but part of their symbols that they were wearing was also shaping their identity. None of those people woke up that morning and thought, well, as a supporter of the EU, as a Muslim, as a Leeds United fan, I will cook up some way of showing that I believe in these things. No, they reached for symbols that were already out there in the community. The guy bought his kit from the Leeds United Supporters Club or whatever. Uh, the, The women dressed as millions of other Islamic women dress. Uh, the lady uh, reached for a jumper that had a flag on designed by someone else. Uh, the, these symbols uh, that, that actually still uh, run through our society don't just express who we are, they shape who we are. Uh, this is what people like me wear, for example, in the case uh, of clothes. And it's not just signs, it's also rituals. You might not think of yourself as someone who's particularly into ritual. You watch documentaries about maybe tribal cultures and we see all these kind of strange rituals and, and sort of think, well, how funny, how quaint, how old-fashioned. But even in the, in the West, even nowadays, we're shaped by rituals. Uh, let's say you were to sort of black out suddenly. Okay, imagine children, you sort of fainted and you suddenly woke up. And as you looked in this, this room, you saw a, a cake on a table with candles sticking out of it. And a child bending over and bang, you would know where, where. What were you at? Where would you be if you saw someone blowing candles out? Yeah, a party. Exactly. You know, you're a birthday party. It's a ritual. There's no rule that says you've got to have a birthday cake with candles and blow them out. And if you're seven, you have seven candles. If you're ten, you have ten candles. It's just a ritual. 
Uh, equally, if you blacked out again, woke up, and you saw a, a woman walking down the church aisle wearing a white dress, arm in arm, uh, with an older man who took her to the front and gave her hand to a younger man who was dressed a bit like a kind of penguin in a suit. And, and behind the woman in the white dress were three friends, also dressed very prettily, holding bouquets of flowers. You would know you're at a wedding. Again, there's no rules, either in the Bible or in law, that that's how you get married, but it's just a ritual. And they shape us. Again, it's not just about us expressing our own identities. These rituals and symbols begin to shape us in return. And people know that. That's why, for instance, you have pride marches and rallies. As in gay pride marches and rallies. It's not enough just to have the identity. We we need to express it. And the march is a way of showing who we are, uh, showing everyone else who we are, and confirming ourselves in that identity. Uh, It's comic relief at the moment. Why do you have to wear a red nose at comic relief? Financially, it doesn't make sense. Why go to all the bother of making all the noses, making all the plastic or whatever they're made out of? It doesn't doesn't add anything in one sense. In fact, they'd make more money if they just asked everyone to donate. But they know that the giving out these signs, this symbol, you know, the red nose, it is a way of getting people to sort of buy in. And so even though it'll make them a little bit less money in one sense, it, it creates much more of an event. It's a little ritual, if you like. Same with poppies. We are shaped by signs and symbols far more than we realize. Here in this passage, there are three rituals, three signs that give identity to God's people. One major one and two or smaller ones. And through these rituals, God speaks to his people. He gives us an identity. Uh, The first is the Passover meal in verses 43 to 49 uh, of chapter 12. The Passover meal. Through the Passover meal, God says to his people, I have saved you. I have saved you. Or if you like, you want to know your identity. You are someone who is saved already. Uh, We are, as I said a moment ago, the, the Passover As these events take place, it is the first Passover, the real one, the one where they got out of Egypt. But this rescue, this painting of the blood above the door, uh, this moment when uh, the Israelites were spared and the Egyptian firstborn died, was just be celebrated year by year. Uh, the details of the meal are interwoven with the account of the rescue itself. And I haven't printed them all out because we looked at them again a couple of weeks ago. It's, it's a long passage. The rescue and the celebration, the ritual, are interwoven. Ritual and rescue. Sort of the verses, the chop and change between the two. But each year, on the anniversary, the Israelites had to take another lamb, kill it, and eat it in this memorial meal. Uh, In chapter 12 and verse 14, just before where we read, God says this, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. It is a memorial, a remembering. Uh, One thing the Passover does is enables 
future generations of Israelites to remember that God has rescued them. Remember, the lamb has died in their place. Of course, that's similar with the meal that we celebrate week by week, isn't it? The Lord's Supper. Uh, In the New Testament, God performs a much greater rescue, not a rescue of Israelites out of Egypt uh, through the death of a lamb, but the rescue of, well, anyone who will come to him, Jew or Gentile, whatever your race, Uh, not from Egypt, but from sin, from death and from God's judgment, and not through the death of a lamb, a little sheep, but through the death of his son. And similarly, he then gives a meal in order that we might remember it. Uh, when Jesus, the night before he goes to the cross, sits down with the disciples, okay, and it's his last chance, at least before the resurrection, to teach them. Uh, and, and, and he focuses in on the Trinity and on the cross, okay, the two biggest things you need to learn about in the Christian life. And when it comes to the, the cross, how is it that we're, we're to remember, said Jesus? Well, he takes a cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance of me. Drink. That's how you're going to remember. He takes a loaf, breaks it, hands it out. Do this as often you eat it in remembrance of me. The way to remember, to stay cross-focused, gospel-centered, is through a meal, said Jesus. We need more than Bible study, in other words. You'd be horrified, wouldn't you, if I said, oh, by the way, we're, we're, as a church, we're going to move away from Bible study. We're, we're, a bit old-fashioned. Okay? Let's, let's, let's get rid of it. It's not a good method for living the Christian life. Okay? You'd rightly walk out of church, leave community group, whatever it is. But as evangelicals, we're sometimes quite down on these signs, the Lord's Supper, as if they don't really matter. Oh, do it, because, you know, Jesus said do it, so we ought to. But it mm, doesn't... It's not that significant, but it really is. It is Jesus' way of reminding us of the gospel week by week. That's why we do it, by the way, week by week. It is his means of reminding us. We must be more spiritual than Jesus. There was once an article in a a very sort of Bible-believing magazine that used to be very popular around here. Um, I think it's now stopped, but anyway. um, This sort of once wrote um, that if it wasn't for sort of one chapter in 1 Corinthians 11, we'd never know about the Lord's Supper. So it's not something we ought to be too bothered about. That's an extraordinary thing to say. And yet this was being said by the the principle of a leading conservative evangelical theological college. These things matter. They are Jesus' ways of reminding us. You might say, well, what's it adding? Hey, why does a meal add to anything? Why couldn't the Israelites just remember? Oh, it's the anniversary. Remember, this is the day everyone came out of Passover. Let's talk about it. Well, because God knows as physical beings, we need more than just words going into our ears. Okay, he is wiser than we are. And so he gives us physical things as well. Things that will touch our tongue and our senses that we can hold in our hands. We can see. There's a big... A lot made often of you know, beautiful pictures of Jesus, or, or perhaps people have crucifixes, Jesus on the cross to remind them of his suffering. But, but Jesus didn't give us pictures of himself, rather he gave us bread and wine so we could see, so all of our senses could be engaged. In that sense, I think I've used the illustration before, but it's a bit like giving your child a kiss. If you say to your child at night, I love you, and then give them a kiss, what is a kiss adding? It's not adding new information, but it is somehow strengthening the words. 
It is communicating in a different way. It's body language. The sacraments to use one person's language are God's body language. So this meal, this memorial meal, preaches to God's people. I have saved you. It also personalizes it for them. If you look at 12 verse uh, 8. Oh, sorry, chapter 13, verse 8. Uh, you tell your son on that day, this commemoration day, uh, we do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Now, the, the first person to say that, the first generation, would be saying that literally. Okay, I was in Egypt and I came out. This is what it's about. But those are the same words that are to be repeated down the generations. And after a while, when it's the great-grandson's turn to be the elder of the family, saying those words, he wasn't in Egypt, and yet he still says the same words. We celebrate this Passover meal, this lamb and the, the bread and the herbs, because of what the Lord did for me when he brought me out of Egypt. So, but he didn't bring you out of Egypt. You were born in Israel. That happened 200 years ago. What are you on about? No, still, he did bring all of us out of Egypt. The faithful Jewish family would say, God treats... Uh, his, his people, whatever their generation, as if they are one people. And therefore as if they were all saved in the Exodus. I saw a bit later in the, in the Bible, in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, all the generation that came out of Egypt had died. Okay? Do you remember they walk in the desert for 40 years? They come out of Egypt, they walk in the desert for 40 years, they all die. Okay? Explicitly told, they're all dead. And Moses, who himself is about to die, is talking to the, the, the new generation okay, who didn't come out of Egypt, who were born in the desert. He's talking to them about the time that God made this whole kind of rescuing agreement with them back in the Exodus. It's none of them were alive. And Moses says this, the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb, Sinai. It wasn't with our ancestors the Lord made his covenant, but with us, with all of us who are here alive today. And the point is, none of them were there. But God still says, no, it's with you. He made it with us. Because God's people are one. So when the Jewish family feed on the lamb, they would remember that they were rescued out of Egypt, even if they weren't there. In other words, God's promises were personalized to them. They are ones who are saved by the blood of the lamb, even if they never saw the original events. Well, so too with the Lord's Supper. You were not there at Golgotha when Jesus died. But week by week, when the bread is broken and put in your hands, it is God saying to you, you were there. United to Christ, it was personally for you that I died. Okay, you weren't able to stand at the foot of the cross and Jesus look you in the eyes and say, I've died for you. I'm doing this for you. But that is what he does week by week when the bread is given to you. This is for you. It's personal. And it also means that you participate in the salvation. It's interesting, isn't it, that God, for the Israelites, gave them a meal, something to eat. Not something to look at, not something to talk about, but something to eat. And when Paul looks back on this, in fact, when he looks back on all the different meals and rituals and signs and symbols that were given in the Old Testament, he says they were spiritual. It was never just physical, it was spiritual. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, you know, that... 
uh, the, 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 the Israelites ate spiritual food and spiritual drink. That's weird. It just looked like lamb or bread or notice, Paul, it was, it was really spiritual food. So too, what we eat and drink as Christians. When we look back at that once and for all sacrifice in Jesus, uh, we don't... We don't re-sacrifice him week by week. That's a kind of Roman Catholic position, as if uh, each week we need to pay for our sins again and it's a kind of non-bloody sacrifice, as the Roman Catholics talk about. No, no, the sacrifice is done and dusted. But it's not just a visual aid either. We eat and drink... Well, we eat and drink to strengthen our, our union with Jesus, our participation in him. He is feeding us. Again, Paul... Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, uh, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Uh, is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? In older versions, that would say a communion with the body of Christ, a communion with the blood of Christ. That's why we call it communion. It's an old-fashioned word. It's mysterious. But, but somehow, when we eat and drink, it's as if... But we're being fed spiritually by Jesus. Not just our minds remembering, oh yeah, he died for me, I remember it, I forgot when I remember it. But also, we're being spiritually fed. Not because there's anything magic about bread and the wine, they're just bread and wine. But because God uses ordinary things to feed his people. Think about the Passover meal again. Uh, the, the, the Israelites were to eat the animal that died for them. Okay, the, the, the animal that redeemed them, rescued them, they were to eat. So the blood is painted on the, the doorposts, but they eat it, take it into themselves. There's a kind of a union between the two. All pointing forward to, well, to Christ, the true Lamb of God. We are united to him. And in this meal, that union is strengthened. And, and so, as, as the meal both preaches to us and personalises Jesus' sacrifices for us and allows us to participate in it, to be part of it, though we weren't there, God is giving us an identity, giving you an identity when you eat and drink week by week. He is saying to you, I have saved you. If you've come and put your trust in Jesus, I have saved you. However fearful you, f- you feel, you are safe. However sinful you feel, you are safe. That is your identity. We say, no, I'm... God is so disappointed with me. I'm so cold-hearted. I'm a bad Christian. A failing Christian. A weak Christian. A doubting Christian. A sinful Christian. A guilty Christian. A lost Christian. An unloved Christian. And, And Jesus says, week by week, no, I've rescued you. See how I've rescued you. Taste how I've rescued you. That is your identity. Well, there are two other festivals, two other signs in chapter 13. We'll look at more briefly uh, that confirm this identity. The second one is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, through which God says, I will take you to heaven. This is verses 3 through 10. It's more contained than the Passover ones, so it's easy to look at in our sheets. Verses 3 through 10, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It tells you how it worked. You had the Passover meal, and then for seven days afterwards, well, you weren't allowed to eat bread with leaven. Now we see it down in verse 3. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Or verse 6, for seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. 
And then on the seventh, there'll be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall not be eaten for seven days. Again, verse seven. No leavened bread shall be seen within you. No leaven shall be seen within all your territory. No leaven, no leaven, no leaven. Time and time again in those verses. Leaven is yeast. It's what makes the bread rise. Um, bread with yeast is nicer. <laughs> but for seven days, they ate this sort of flat bread. Not as nice. But commanded by God. Uh, why? What's going on? Well, look at verse 3 of uh, chapter 13. Uh, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Eating this unleavened bread was meant to remind you that you have, verse 3, been brought out of Egypt, out of slavery. And not just out of slavery, but, verse 5, when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, with who, which he swore to your fathers, uh, to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service. The Unleavened Bread Festival, this week-long festival which the Jews celebrated forevermore afterwards, was to remind them they'd been rescued from Egypt and to the Promised Land, to this Paradise Land. In that sense, I think the yeast symbolises the, the, the old life. Don't, don't bring the yeast out of Egypt. Yeast is alive, isn't it? Um, I am no cook. I am no baker. It's quite trendy nowadays to make, to grow your own yeast, isn't it? And all the rest of it. Um, and it's alive. It's alive. But don't bring all that sort of live yeast out of Egypt, your, your former life. Don't leave all that behind. And I'm going to start anew because I'm taking you to a paradise, a, a new land. The old is gone. The new has come. I don't want you feeding, getting your life, if you like. Bread is what gives you life. I don't want it to be full of the old. Rather, I want it to be, well, the new. Sometimes said that uh, the book of Exodus is both about God getting his people out of Egypt, but also about God getting Egypt out of his people. Old ways of life, old patterns. I need to be changed. The Exodus sets them free. Uh, that's why I, I put in the sheets, uh, for those of you who got a today's version, and earlier I read 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. This is how Paul applies the festival. Uh, the Corinthians are doing all sorts of things wrong. I mean, if you read the letter of 1 Corinthians, it's mayhem, isn't it? Okay, you've got same-sex relationships going on, you've got a guy sleeping with his mother-in-law, uh, you've got people mistreating each other financially. Uh, it, is, it is total carnage. Verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 5. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. Okay, he's using that language of yeast again. Get rid of the old, because you're new people. And he links it to the Passover. Verse uh, 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice, wickedness, and evil but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul takes this leavened bread festival, unleavened bread festival, and says, look, it is true in a much deeper sense for you Christians. Get rid of everything that belongs to the old life, your old way of life, before Christ rescued you, before you were forgiven, before you were set free from the power of sin, and instead live as those on their way to heaven, live the new life. Uh, you have been set free. 
uh, live like a new person, look forward in other ways. Again, the Lord's Supper does preach that message to us too. It tells us we are new creations, new people, destined for heaven. Jesus said you should celebrate the Lord's Supper until he comes. It's a little foretaste of the heavenly banquet that was celebrated in heaven uh, when one day we arrive safely home. It causes us to look forward as well and therefore to, to put our lives in order so that we live like new people. Uh, children, imagine you've just, you just been in prison. Okay, imagine you've been in prison for, I don't know, stealing money of your sister or something. And, um, and you get out of prison. Okay, you spent 10 years in prison. Uh, and so you get given some money to go to the shops. Okay, you're free at last. Go, go and get some clothes. So you run, run down to the shops for your 50 pounds. You come home. Uh, and you, your mum says, okay, what have you got? What have you got? What are your new clothes? And you say, well, I've got some handcuffs and a ball and chain and I've got a sort of prison striking uniform what would mum say to you what are you doing you're not a prisoner anymore you've been set free don't dress like like the old you like the you in prison you've been set free there's a new you well in the in the gospel when we turn to trust Christ we've been set free and so we're to dress not physically but spiritually like new people Again, the meal sets the identity. When you take the Lord's Supper in your hands, you're meant to not think of yourself as an alcoholic, a porn addict, someone crushed by anxiety or depression, someone plagued by lust. These are all the identities we take to ourselves, don't we? I'm a failure. I'm incapable of breaking free of sin. I've stumble and fall. I'm a, I'm a disappointment. I'm all these negative identities. But instead we'd think of ourselves as those who are free. You have been set free. And therefore pack for heaven, dress for heaven. And then finally, if the Passover meal says to us, or God says to us through us, I have saved you. If the firstborn, sorry, the feast of the unleavened bread said to God's people, I will take you to heaven. Then the third and final ceremony, the redemption of the firstborn says to us, God owns you. God says to you this morning, I do own you. I have rescued you. I will take you to heaven. I do own you. This is verse 11 to 16 in the passage. When the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to your fathers, you shall set apart for the Lord all that first opens the womb. Uh, the firstborn male, as is clarified, is given to the Lord, whether it's an animal or a human. And so the Jews had this ritual set down in, in Scripture, a ritual where the firstborn was dedicated, given to the Lord. Uh, if it was a firstborn of a, a clean animal, a sacrificial animal, like a lamb or a goat or a bull, well, it would be sacrificed. Uh, if it was something unclean, like a donkey, that's the example given here, verse 13, so your oldest boy donkey, it had to be redeemed. Okay, you can't sacrifice a donkey. That's not a clean animal in, in God's worship system in the Old Testament. And so it had to have a substitute. A lamb would die in its place. And you would redeem it. To redeem something means to, to buy it back. Uh, so you could keep the donkey because you gave God the lamb in its place. Uh, what about if a human is born? Well, also, verse 13, every firstborn of man among you, every human among your sons, you shall redeem. You'll need to sacrifice for them. You don't sacrifice the human, obviously. But you sacrifice a lamb, a goat, a pigeon, a dove, whatever you could afford. Uh, why? 
Well, because the firstborn belong to the Lord. Verse 12, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first, um, or all that first opens the womb. Of course, everything belongs to God in one sense, but the firstborn, the eldest, symbolized everybody else and everything else. So by giving him the firstborn, you gave him everything. And this, this ceremony taught, particularly the firstborn child, the firstborn male child, but therefore the whole family, that they weren't their own. They'd been bought by a price or with a price. Again, verse 14, when in time your son comes to you and says, what does this mean? What's going on? Okay, why are you sacrificing a pigeon for me? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. When Pharaoh suddenly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of of Egypt. You belong to the Lord. He bought you with a price. And again, that is true of us. We have been bought with a price. We are not our own. Uh, The church in Hebrews 12 is described as uh, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You may be the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth born in your family, but you are a firstborn because you belong to the Lord. Jesus has purchased you. And again, this gives you an identity. You're not primarily a a plumber or a teacher or a son or a daughter or a postman or a poet or a mum or a dad. Primarily, you are someone who's been bought by God. You are owned by him. So you don't need to find your identity. The world tells us to discover identity, doesn't it? Be who you are, look within. And, but, but actually, instead, we, we look out and God gives us our identity. You are my child, I have bought you. You are someone I'm taking home to heaven. You are someone I've paid for with the blood of my own dear son. If you're not a Christian at the moment, then the invitation this morning is, is to come and join the family. You might have noticed... Uh, all the way through that, that passage at the end of uh, chapter 12, the first bit we read, uh, that it wasn't just pure Israelites who were in this company, who came out of Egypt in the Exodus. There's all sorts of others, different categories. Workers who've joined in, other slaves who are perhaps escaping, foreigners, travellers, all sorts. Uh, they couldn't take the meal, the Passover meal, unless they'd been circumcised. Circumcised was a sign of becoming part of God's people, like baptism today. That's why we'll often say, don't take the Lord's Supper unless you've been baptised. Baptism is a sign of coming into God's people. The Lord's Supper is a sign that you're going on, continuing with God and his people. But the invitation was, come, come and get circumcised, come and get baptised. That is Jesus' invitation to you this morning. If you want your sin to be forgiven, your guilt to be gone, if you want to be heading to heaven, if you want to be a son or daughter of the living God, you don't need to do anything, you just need to come and he will ask. Jesus has died for you. His blood has been poured out for you. He's ransomed you, rescued you from hell, from death from the judgment of God. Just come and be part of his people and he will give you all these things. And from then onwards, this meal, this bread and wine will enable you to keep walking. It will give you your identity. Who do you think of yourself as? Christian, who do you think of yourself as? Leave behind the old. I'm a sinner, I'm a failure. I'm a doubter. 
And instead, through this sign that God has given you, remember the cross where God says, you are my child. I have bought you. I will take you safely home. Let's pray. Our Father, we are your children. Uh, We confess that we easily forget that, uh, that we wander from you uh, in thought and word and deed. Uh, We praise you that you are gracious, that it is you who came to rescue us, you who brought us back through the blood of your son, Jesus. Uh, You who promises you will take us safely home. And so we pray we would live as those with our eyes fixed on heaven, not as looking back to Egypt, but forwards towards glory. Uh, We pray that we believe the things you have said about us. Believe your word more than our own feelings, more than our own hearts, more than our own doubts and confusions. You tell us you are your children, that we have been born again, that there is no condemnation, that we are safe, that we are beloved, that you rejoice over us with singing. Enable us to believe your word and ignore uh, the devil and the doubts of our own hearts. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.